Uh, welcome again to Faith. My name is Mike. I am one of the pastors on staff here, and it's great to have everybody here as we are worshiping both online and in person for the first time, the same time, in a long time. Uh, yeah. So... That's exciting, but you, you need to know, and depending on how close to this process you've been, it's really complicated uh, to do that. And so, uh, and that, those complications impact everybody. Let me just address some of the ways they're impacting some of you right now so that you don't have to email me or catch me out in the parking lot and have a needless conversation with me. Uh, and I can have this conversation once time instead of a dozen. So, for example, you may have noticed that the lighting in the room is a little bit less than what you're used to. And some of you are out there going, purr, purr, it's too dark in here. Here's the deal with that. If we have the lighting like we used to have it when we were only doing in-person worship, it completely washes out the screen for the folks who are worshiping at home. So that's why the lighting is the way it is. You may also notice when we get into the message that the, uh, only the really um, observant people, that's a nice way to put it, the observant people among us will notice uh, Eric called you nitpicky earlier today, I don't know what his problem is, but uh, th that the PowerPoint slides are going to be portrait rather than landscape. Again, that works better with the way that the viewing is set up if you're watching online. We think we have that one figured out in later renditions of what this is going to look like. Or some of you may notice throughout the day, you're going to be like, why does it feel like he keeps looking over our heads at the back of the room? He should be making eye contact with me right now. So everybody just turn around and look at the blue light on the back wall there. See that blue light? That's the camera. And so I'm going to make eye contact with all of you at times, and at times I'm going to make eye contact with folks who are watching online, and to do that, I've got to look at the blue light. And you're like, well, you should be looking at me. I've got a secret for you. I've never looked at you. <laughs> I've always looked right over your heads. It's a speaker's technique, all right? So I've never looking at you in the first place. You just know it now, all right? So those are some of the things that are just, it's, it's new when we're doing both, it's complicated, but here's the deal, we get to be here, all right? And so you got to make some sacrifices to get to be here, that's, that's the deal. If you're like, I don't want to make those sacrifices, 9.40 a.m. Facebook Live, you can you know, watch in your PJs, all right? So let's pray, and we're going to jump into a brand new series. Father, just thank you again um, that we get to be here and that the community that so many of us have been really hungry for, at least in some form, it's available. Um, God, we just want to recognize we are still the church, whether we get to sit in this room together or whether we're together uh, at home in different homes and taking advantage of technology that's available to us today. Um, we are your church, and um, we're just excited to worship you today as your church in whatever form that needs to be in. God, we pray you bless the technology and that it would work. God, we pray that you would pour out your spirit on us, that you'd make our hearts receptive to your truth that um, isn't always easy to hear, isn't always easy to digest, but always is so good for our lives and our souls. As we look at some of that truth today, please meet us in it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we are, are launching a brand new series today entitled Burned, 
And uh, if you haven't heard about the series, or you're not sure what the series is all about, let me kind of illustrate it this way. H- how many of us sitting at home, sitting in the room, have ever had a negative interaction with another human being? Hey, look at that. Just about everybody, right? Right? Just how it works. Every t- now and then you run into somebody and you have an interaction with them and it leaves you feeling burned. Now, how many of you are willing to admit you're sitting next to that person right now? All right, some brave people, all right? For those of you who didn't have the courage to do that, on your connection card, you just fill their name out, let us know what they did, you submit that, and we will pray for them, all right? Just, it, 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 this is just reality, though. It, it, you live life long enough, sooner or later, you're going to run into somebody, you're going to feel burned. Now, what are we supposed to do with that? Because you see, whether we realize it or not, how we respond when we feel burned is incredibly important. There is so much that rides on our response to feeling burned. For example, how I respond when I feel burned, it reveals what I really believe to be true about some of the most important concepts in life. Things like the nature of people, or the person of Jesus, or the power of the cross, or the, the, the real factors behind life change. All of those concepts and more, what I believe about them, not what I say I believe, but what I truly believe about them, gets revealed in how I respond to being burned. Or how I respond to being burned it can put my spiritual health at risk. How I respond to being burned, it can, it can like totally take my spiritual life off the tracks, derail me altogether. Now, the good news is the opposite is true. How I respond to being burned, it can cause me to grow spiritually in ways that I never imagined possible. And how I respond to being burned, it can provide me with an opportunity to present Christianity in a truly compelling way to a world that is watching. Like if, if I can get this thing right, there are fewer better apologetics for my faith than how I respond when I feel burned. All of this and more is what's on the line. Now, some of us, we hear that and we think, I don't know. I mean, sure, how I respond when I get burned, I'm sure that's important, but like, really, all of that? And if you're there, I'm not mad at you, because I, I, I was right there with you at one point. Until I took a deep dive into the book of Philemon. And the further I dug into that book, the more I realized this and more is what is at stake in how we respond when we feel burned. And so what we're going to do in this series is we're going to dive into this book. We're going to unpack this book together. And and as we do, each week we're going to look closely at a different individual. And we're going to see what their lives teach us about what we're talking about here and more. Now, if you're not familiar with the, with the book of Philemon, it's this little itty-bitty book buried deep in your New Testament, and it's like reading somebody else's mail. Now, how many of you enjoy that? Come on. <laughs> Nobody will admit that. All right. Um, thank you, Kat. So uh, it's like reading somebody else's mail. And, and if you like reading somebody else's mail, you'll love Philemon because you're allowed 
to read Philemon's mail. You're supposed to read Philemon's mail. See, while it is an intensely personal letter written to a guy named Philemon, it's not that complicated, all right? It's, it's an intensely personal letter written to Philemon. It's also meant to be a letter for public consumption. And here's why. The letter is written to Philemon about a negative interaction that he has with somebody. One that leaves him feeling burned. But it's an interaction that everybody in his world is aware of. And everybody in his world is watching to see how he's going to respond to this. What is he going to do with this? Because how he responds, it's not just going to impact him. It's going to impact everybody who's watching as well. So let's read through this book together, and then we'll look at our first individual. Paul writes this. He says, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, also to Apphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home, grace and peace to you from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your love and all, for all of God's holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. I pray that your partnership with us in faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. You have given me, your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. Therefore, Although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is as none other than Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner in Christ, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he's become useful both to you and to me. I am sending him who is my very heart back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you do would not seem forced but would be voluntary. Perhaps for this reason, he was separated from you for a little while so that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave as a dear brother." He is very dear to me and even dearer both to you and to me as a fellow man and a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done anything wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this in my own hand. I will pay it back. Not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write this knowing that you will do even more than I ask. If, uh, and one more thing, prepare a guest room for me because I hope to be restored to you and answer to your prayers. Now, a lot we just covered there. And, and, and today, what we're going to do today is we're going to zoom in specifically on the individual Philemon. But before we do that, I want to give you some backstory that'll help unpack some of what we just read. So, the whole thing starts with a guy named Paul. And Paul is this guy who has devoted his life to planting churches, to helping people come into a relationship with Christ. Paul is in, in, in Ephesus, he's pastoring there, and he runs into 
Philemon. Philemon's there on a business trip, and Paul convinces Philemon to become a Christian. And, and Philemon jumps into ministry with Paul, loves the time he's spending ministry with Paul, and then he goes back home to Colossia, where he lives. And when he gets back home, he gets just super involved in his church there, and all kinds of amazing things are happening in Philemon's life. He's growing in his relationship with God. He's neck deep up in the ministry. It's just amazing until they hit a speed bump. He has a negative interaction with a guy named Onesimus, one that leaves him feeling burned. And so everybody in Philemon's family and everybody in his church and everybody in his community they're all watching. They want to see how he's going to handle this thing. Now, if you're going, okay, well, what, what's the problem? What happened between these two? Well, here it is. Onesimus was enslaved to Philemon. And while he was, he consistently did a lousy job at the things he was assigned to do. Until one day, nobody could find Onesimus. And when they went looking for Onesimus, they discovered not only is Onesimus missing, but a whole bunch of Philemon's money is missing as well. Onesimus took advantage of the trust that he had, robbed Philemon blind, and then used his money to fund a trip to Rome where he was going to spend the rest of his life living off of Philemon's dime. And all of this left Philemon feeling burned. Now, before we go any further, let me just deal with something that some of you just had come rushing to the forefront of your minds the minute I said the word enslaved. Some of you heard that and you said, okay, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Philemon had slaves? Like, how do you reconcile that with the fact that this guy was a Christian? How do you reconcile that with the fact that, that, that this guy was involved in church? It sounds like maybe he was supposed to be a good guy, but how do you reconcile the fact that he had slaves with any of that? I mean, wasn't Onesimus justified in running away? Wasn't Onesimus justified in taking things? Wasn't Onesimus justified in resisting that? I mean, is, is this the kind of junk that people point to when they say the Bible supports slavery? And, and we just read through that whole letter. How come Paul didn't come outright and condemn slavery in that letter directly? See, the minute we say that word, all of those questions and more come running up into our minds. And if you have those questions, those are fair questions to ask. And we'll continue to deal with this throughout the course of the series. But for today, let me answer those questions this way. Slavery in the first century Greco-Roman world was radically different than slavery in our country's past. Same, same term used to describe both institutions, but they were radically different institutions. To, 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 to try and make an apples-to-apples -apples comparison with slavery in the first century Greco-Roman world to slavery in our country today is just grossly historically inaccurate and intellectually irresponsible. They were radically different. There were things that were ungodly and inhumane about slavery in the first century Greco-Roman world, but there were so many advantages to it. You didn't get that with slavery in our country. For example... In the first century Greco-Roman world, people would oftentimes enter into slavery because they had debts that they could not pay. 
or you had people who, who did not have the resources to eat and live indoors. They could not take care of themselves financially anymore, and they entered into slavery. In many ways, it was the social service safety net of the day. Or in the first century Greco-Roman world, slaves could earn money. In fact, they could earn enough money to purchase their freedom. They could earn enough money to pay off all their debts. They could earn enough money, and oftentimes did, to purchase their own slaves. In the first century Greco-Roman world, a person could earn enough money where they could, they could leave slavery altogether, and oftentimes they chose not to. Their freedom was right there. It was available to them, and oftentimes they declined. They chose not to because the benefits socially and financially associated with freedom in that world oftentimes outweighed those available to them if they were free. In the first century Greco-Roman world, slaves were, were oftentimes highly educated, respectable individuals. They were doctors, they were lawyers, they were household managers. Most scholars believe that Luke, the guy who wrote the book of Luke, at one time was a slave. To, 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 to say that this is the same thing as what we dealt with in our country is just not accurate. Now again, there were ungodly, inhumane aspects to that first century Greco-Roman slavery, but it is a radically different institution than what we dealt with in our country. In fact, if, if you want a more accurate equivalent, a more modern day example of what we're dealing with between Philemon and Onesimus, it would go like this. Say you own a business, and your business is successful, and you run into a guy who is down on his luck, he's got some skills, but, but he's really struggling. And so you offer this individual a job. And they take that job, and then consistently they do a lousy job at that job until one day they just don't show up to work. And you go looking for them, and not only can't you find them, but you can't find a whole bunch of the company's money because they embezzled all kinds of company funds, skipped town, and they are on their way to the Caymans where they're going to live off of your money for the rest of their life. That is a more accurate comparison to what's going on between Onesimus and Philemon. And it leaves Philemon feeling burned. So, Onesimus, he robs Philemon blind, runs off to Rome, and meets a guy named Paul there. Same Paul that Philemon met. Just Paul's in Rome now. And Paul convinces Onesimus to become a Christian. And Onesimus dives into ministry with Paul, and one day, while they're talking about Onesimus' past, Paul puts, he connects the dots between Philemon and Onesimus and himself. He realizes, this is Philemon's Onesimus. And so Paul sends Onesimus back to Colossia with a letter for Philemon in his hands that's become known as the book of Philemon. Try and imagine the tension that goes with a scene like this. Standing in your living room is the guy who you hired to help out. The guy who robbed your company blind. The guy who skipped town. He is now standing in your living room with a letter from your dearly loved friend and spiritual mentor. How do you feel about that guy? What do you want to do now that he's within arm's reach? And what might that letter from your friend have to say about all of it? 
See, that's what's happening at the beginning of the book of Philemon. So, let's look closely at this guy, Philemon. Because again, in many ways, he was a good guy. He really was. Paul talks about it. Paul, Paul will call Philemon his dear friend and fellow worker. Basically, he's saying Philemon's a guy who, who partnered with Paul in all kinds of ministry. I'm telling you, when, when two people see what God is calling the church to, and they lock arms, and they bleed, and they sweat, and they shed tears, and seeing that vision become reality, there is something that happens in the relationship between those two people. There's just a bond that is formed there. You can't get anywhere else. Philemon had that kind of bond, that kind of shared experience with the Apostle Paul of all people. Or Paul will talk about the church that meets in your home. See, the book of Philemon comes out about 30 years after the conception of the church. They didn't have buildings like this to do church in. Basically, communities of Christians would just hope, they would pray that somebody would join their community who's wealthy enough and generous enough to have a home big enough to host church and they would open up their house. So every Saturday, Philemon's getting the, you know, the, the everything company clean, and then he has the whole church over to his house for church on Sunday, and then they all leave and he's got to get the house put back together again for to function as their home for the rest of the week. The church in Colossia has a church to meet in because of Philemon. Or Paul will pray for Philemon. He talks about it in verse 4. He says, I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your love for all of his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. Paul's saying, man, Philemon, every time I think about you, I'm just thanking God for you. The way you love people, it just makes my soul sing. That the faith you have in Jesus, the way you're willing to just put your life in his hands and trust him, it makes my faith bigger when I think about your faith. In so many ways, Philemon is growing in his relationship with God. He's involved in all kinds of ministry. Things are going well. And yet Paul is concerned for Philemon. And some of his concern, you, you pick up on it in verse 6. Probably the hardest verse in the whole letter to translate. The NIV translates it this way. Paul says to Philemon, he says, I pray that your partnership with us may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing that we share for the sake of Christ. Paul saying, Philemon, there's this faith that we have shared. And I'm praying for you about the faith that we've shared. I'm praying for you about the ministry that we've partnered in. And I'm praying that that's going to cause your faith to grow even more in the future. That it's going to cause you to have an appreciation for what God is doing in your midst. Paul is saying, finally, I am praying for you, buddy. God has done so much in and through you up to this point, and I'm just praying that that will continue as we move forward. Now, can you hear some of the implied concern on Paul's part? Like, just stop and ask yourself, why does Paul feel like he needs to, to pray for Philemon and remind him about everything God's done, and why does he feel like he needs to pray that that'll continue in the future. 
You get a sense of why in verses 8, 9, and 10. Here's what Paul prays. He says, therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is none other than Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus. See, Paul's therefore, in verse 8, is there for a reason. It's there to point us back to why he's praying for what he's praying for, Philemon, in verse 6. See, Paul is concerned about how Philemon is going to respond to being burned by Onesimus and what that's going to do to Philemon if he responds poorly. See, Paul knows. knows he knows Philemon feels burned. And he knows that when Philemon feels burned, there's a very real temptation to go bitter and resentful and vengeful. It happens. Anytime somebody feels burned, there's a very real temptation to go to all three of those places. And Paul understands if Philemon gives in to that temptation, the spiritual momentum that has just been rolling in his life, it'll come to a halt. And Paul understands if Philemon gives in to that temptation, a roadblock is going to go up between him and God. One that will keep his faith from growing and one that will keep him from appreciating what God has done in his life up to this point. And Paul understands if Philemon gives in to that temptation, it will cripple him in participating in ministry as he moves forward. And so Paul prays for Philemon because he understands all that is at stake. Paul prays for Philemon because he understands how difficult it's going to be to address this problem correctly. And then Paul tells Philemon what he needs to do. And you may or may not have picked up on it in the letter because Paul's kind of indirect about it. But basically, Paul asks Philemon to do the most difficult thing that one person can be asked to do when they feel burned by another person. Paul asks Philemon to say no to bitterness and resentment and revenge and to say yes to mercy and grace and forgiveness and reconciliation. Paul asks Philemon to forgive, to extend grace, to extend mercy to the guy standing in his living room, to the guy who did a lousy job when he tried to help him out, to the guy who robbed him blind and took advantage of his trust, to the guy who skipped town on him. Paul asked Philemon to be reconciled to Onesimus. And Paul does this for two reasons. First of all, he understands everything that Philemon is at risk of losing if he doesn't say no to bitterness and resentment and revenge. And Paul understands how much spiritual growth, the, the way that Philemon could skyrocket spiritually if he'll say yes to mercy and grace and forgiveness. And so the book of Philemon made its way into the New Testament in part, so that we would read it. 
in part because all that was at stake for Philemon and how he responded when he felt burned is at stake for you and me and how we respond when we feel burned. Because again, I, with life and relationships, it's just a matter of time before something's going to get junked up. And when it does, we are going to respond. And when we respond, there's a very real temptation for you and for me to respond with bitterness and resentment and revenge. But the minute we give in to that temptation, the spiritual momentum that's rolling in our lives, it comes to a standstill. And the minute we give in to that temptation, the roadblock goes up between us and God. And the minute we give in to that temptation, we cripple ourselves. Our ability to participate in what God is doing now and in the future, it stops right there. What was true for Philemon is true for you, and it's true for me. For example, um, prior to coming on staff here at Faith, uh, almost two years ago, do you realize in September it'll be two years? I cannot believe you all haven't tried to run me out yet. Um, so nearly two years ago, I was on staff at another church. And we had uh, the, the founding and lead pastor leave the church, took a role with the denomination, and it was about a year and a half process to find a new lead pastor. And during that time, one of the things that I did was serve as the interim lead pastor. Now, a lot of good things came out of that. Like, for me personally, I discovered, hey, I kind of like this. And I think I have some gifting towards this. And I think, I think maybe I would want to do this once we get things figured out here at this church. And some really good things happened at the church. Like, the church grew in a time of interim. That is, I don't know what you know about like how things go at churches when they're in between pastors. That is unheard of, right? Like when you're in between pastors, you're just hoping you don't lose too many people. You would be thrilled just to maintain numbers, but the idea that we're going to grow during this time, that's just ridiculous. But at the church, we looked around, we said, we've got a good team. We are not going to circle up the wagons and just try and maintain. We are going to take some ground for God. And then God showed up big time. We broke all kinds of attendance records, and we grew the church by about 100 people in a year and a half. It was amazing, right? So we get to the end of this time. I've made a decision. I'm going to, I'm going to pursue a role and, um, and you know, try and, and find a role where I can be a lead pastor somewhere. And so I'm, I'm looking at this, and, and, I, and I was having a conversation with somebody at that church. And somebody asked me a, a question in the midst of that conversation. I don't know if you've ever had this experience. Like, somebody asks you a question, and you're just dumbfounded when they first ask you that question. But the further you get from that question, the more it just bakes your biscuits, right? That, that's how it went down. They asked me, I was like, huh? And the further I got away from it, just the angrier I became. And the question was this. The person said to me, oh, you're thinking about becoming a lead pastor? You, you, oh, things have gone so well here. Mike, what would you say to the charge that the church growing under your leadership was really just the result of the systems that you were in rather than your leadership? What would you say to the charge that we didn't grow, we didn't set attendance records because of something you did, you just happened to be lucky enough to step into a system that was already functioning? What would you say to the charge, we could have put any monkey behind the wheel of this Tesla and he'd have kept the car on the road just fine? 
Now, I'm not proud of it, but if I'm honest, that conversation really bugged me. And I wrestled with that conversation for a long time. I wrestled for that conversation even after I got here. And if I'm honest, and I'm not proud of it, but if I'm honest, there were days where the temptation to go bitter or to go resentful or to go vengeful got the better of me. And on those days, the spiritual momentum that was rolling in my life, I could feel it just come to a standstill. And on those days, I could feel the barrier go up between me and God. On those days, I had a hard time appreciating the good things that God was doing here over the course of those two years. The way that we have grown you know, numerically, the way that we have grown spiritually, the way that we have grown in mission and health. On those days, I couldn't see it. And on the days where I was giving in to the temptation to go bitter or resentful or vengeful, I put the spiritual momentum that was rolling in our church at risk. Because you see, what was true for Philemon was true for me. And just like how Philemon responded, it didn't just impact him. How I responded, it wasn't just going to impact me. That's my story. And, and chances are, you've all got a story you could tell. And chances are, your stories are way more painful than mine. I get it. My story seems petty and insignificant compared to what some of us have dealt with. But don't you see, that's what makes this all the more important. Because if you got burned worse than I did, the temptation for you to go bitter or resentful or vengeful is all the more real. And if somebody hurt you or did something more nasty to you than they did to me, then that means the risk of the spiritual momentum or, or the barrier going up or being crippled is all the more real for you. See, Paul knew this. Paul knew this about Philemon. He knew this about me. He knew this about you. And so Paul writes to Philemon and to all of us. And he says, look, God was doing so much in your life. God has done so much through you. Don't let that interaction you had with that other person who burned you derail all of that. Say no to bitterness and resentment and revenge. And say yes to mercy and grace and forgiveness. Do everything you can to be reconciled to that person. If you will, there are ways that you will grow that you never imagined possible. See, Paul understood this. He understood that some of the sweetest spiritual fruit we will ever harvest in life will come as a result of how we respond to relational adversity. Some of the deepest spiritual growth we will ever experience is going to be the byproduct of saying no to bitterness and resentment and revenge and saying yes to mercy and grace and forgiveness. So Paul says, hey, when somebody burns you, 
say no to this garbage and say yes to these things. And if you will, it'll keep you from experiencing the fallout that comes with that ugliness. And if you will say yes to the right things, there will be levels of self-discipline. There will be levels of growth that you experience. Your faith will be stretched in ways that you simply can't experience anywhere else. If you will choose to be reconciled, you will have shared experience with Jesus that you can't have any other place. Paul says, say no to this and say yes to this because there's just way too much at risk. There's way too much at stake to get this backwards. So that's our man Philemon. And his story is there to teach us that when somebody burns us, we say no to bitterness and resentment and revenge. And we say yes to mercy and grace and forgiveness and reconciliation. And so the question then becomes, okay, how do we do that? Is there something beyond what's at stake that could serve to motivate us to say no to what we should say no to and to say yes to what we should say yes to? And the answer to that question is yes, there is. And that's exactly what we're going to talk about next weekend as we take a closer look at a guy named Onesimus. Would you stand and pray with me, please? Father, today, as we have looked at Philemon's story, and in so many ways, our story, God, if there's somebody who's burned us and we're struggling with that, God, I just pray you bring that person to mind right now. Just in your mercy, you would not let us escape what's been impacting our lives and our spirituality that we want to shove off to some corner and pretend doesn't exist. God, bring that person to mind, please. God, help us just to see clearly whether or not we're saying no to what we need to say no to, whether or not we're saying yes to what we need to say yes to. God, help us to see what our bitterness and resentment is costing us. God, help us to see good that you want to do in us and in our lives and in the lives of the individuals who our lives are connected to, if we would say yes. And Father, today and in the weeks to come, we just pray for the grace and the strength and self-discipline to say yes to the things that Paul is calling us to say yes to, the things that you are calling us to say yes to. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.